Let's open our Bibles, please, the book of Exodus. And we're in the 23rd chapter, 23rd and 24th, we want to try to cover tonight. Because the 25th has to do with our beginning of our uh, lessons on the tabernacle. In fact, to bring you up to date, let me do this. And I'll rehearse it again for you because by the time we get through, which is not too far ahead, because we're going to brief the tabernacle as much as possible, but I would like for you to know this, that uh, you'd have a grip of the book of Exodus. And in order to do that, let me remind you of the chapter titles, and this will give you an idea of what you should have learned so far. Israel in bondage, chapter 1. Remember, they were in bondage. Chapter 2, the birth of Moses. He was the deliverer. Chapter 3, you have the call and commission of Moses. God called him and God commissioned him. And then chapter 4, the credentials of the deliverer, who was Moses, of course. And then chapter 5 and 6, you have conflict between Pharaoh and Moses. It, it begins. In chapter 6 through 11, you have uh, the ten judgments and four compromises. Those ten judgments in chapter 6 through 11 are... Uh, blood was, uh, water was turned into blood, and there were frogs, and there was lice, and there were flies, murrain, uh, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and the death of the firstborn. It'd be good if you want to really apply yourself to the book of Exodus, memorize the Ten Judgments, memorize the Ten Commandments. And by the way, in those Ten Judgments, in that section, chapter six through, uh, 7 through 11, uh, there were four compromises. Uh, as well as ten judgments. Pharaoh tried to compromise uh, with Moses and the children of Israel. And he says, you can go sacrifice, but don't go very far away. And then he says, you can go uh, sacrifice, but leave your you know, sons and daughters here and, and your cattle and everything. And then he, he made various different compromises. And finally, Moses says, we'll go. We'll go three days' journey into the wilderness. We will take our little ones, our wives, and our children. And he says, we'll take all of our cattle and everything. And he says, not an hoof shall be left behind. And God doesn't make any compromises. And we just well face that. What God says goes. You know, we have people today that say, well, regardless of how high a power we have, uh, they, they can be compromised some way. And that's what happens in our government and nation. And they make their compromises. They're doing it tonight, too. <laughs> But anyway, be that as it may, you, you go right on down the line. God doesn't compromise. And He tells us what's right and wrong in His Word. In fact, uh, some of the compromises they're making now are things that God's Word condemns and says, No, you shall not. And you know what I'm talking about without me going into detail. And anyway, then after those uh, 11 chapters, you have chapter 12, the Passover. You can remember the 12th chapter of Exodus and say the Passover and the Passover lamb. And then chapter 13 was the sanctification or setting apart, if you want to put it that way, of the firstborn. God says, all the firstborn is mine. In chapter 14, you have the crossing of the Red Sea. <clears throat> and after it was crossed, in chapter 15, you have the song of redemption. They could sing about their redemption, couldn't they? They were saved by blood, they were saved by power, and now they could sing the song of redemption. In chapter uh, 16 is the manna that God gave them from heaven. Chapter 17, there was water from the rock, and then they began to have war with Amalek. Uh, Amalek is a picture of the flesh. And then in chapter 18, you have Jethro suggesting to Moses how to set up uh, the 
various ones to help him with his judgments. And it's really a picture of millennial scene more so than it is of what really would apply and work for Israel because it never did really work for Israel. Uh, they made an attempt to make it work, but you know, everything under the law and under man's uh, hands by works have failed, and it's only by the grace of God that we have salvation. Chapter 19, Israel comes to Sinai. Chapter 20, the giving of the law. That's the Ten Commandments. Now, we gave you those in our last couple of lessons. In the Ten Commandments, uh, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. We taught all these. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those, those first four show man's relationship to God. And in the last six, man's relationship to his fellow man. It says, Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And thou shalt not covet. And then we have, after the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments and those in order, we have chapters 21 through 23, which we've been teaching just previously. And it gives uh, diverse laws for God's people. And actually, he's giving the various judgments. He's expanding, or you might say interpreting and applying uh, the law of the Ten Commandments. And he's breaking them down to where they apply to our everyday lives. And then when we finish that, that's the section we're in right now, in chapter 24 we'll see Moses up in the mountain. And then from 25 on, we'll have uh, the tabernacle. Chapter 25 gives us the materials of the tabernacle. And then chapters 26 through 30, the instruction for building the tabernacle. And then... uh, Chapter 31, the Holy Spirit qualifies man for this work of building the tabernacle because they couldn't do it on their own. They had to, be, they had to have God-given talent in order to do this. And by the way, in anything in God's work, it must come from God to do it. You don't do it of the flesh and you don't do it of yourself. You have to have God's talent, God's ability, and be willing to be surrendered to the work and service of God. And then chapters 32 through 34 is a kind of a a parenthetical section. The experience of the golden calf in in 32 and 33. Moses sees the glory of God in 34, the second tables of stone. Uh, And then uh, chapter 35, you have God's people giving. And chapter 36, God's people are restrained from giving. Can you imagine that? When we start studying these things, they're going to really be eye-opening because God's people gave all the materials to the tabernacle. And then, then Moses says, tell the people to quit bringing. We have more than enough. They were restrained from giving. Can you imagine people of God being restrained from giving? We don't need it anymore. I've never heard very many preachers come across with that kind of idea. Have you? They say, come on, more and more. But anyway, God says there was a plenty. There was plenty. And by the way, when God's people are moved according to the Holy Spirit, there'll be enough and there'll be sufficient. Then chapters 37 through 39, you have the construction of the tabernacle. And then uh, chapter 40, God's glory covers the tabernacle. That gives you a summation of what you'll find. If you knew nothing, if you'd like to copy these, but if you knew nothing but the chapter titles, you'd know something about the book of Exodus. If you just knew what I've rehearsed to you tonight, you'd say, well, I can get a grip on that book just by these things. Now, next, uh, in our next lesson, I hope to give you these 14 materials 
for the tabernacle, just like I've given you the Ten Judgments and also the Ten Commandments. Now then, let's pick up our lesson in Exodus chapter 23. You think you're getting a grip of this now, the book of Exodus, by listening to these chapter titles and the various things that we've taught? I hope you do. And so that when you go away, after we finish the book, you'll say, I kind of know what that book of Exodus is all about. Just like we went through Genesis and give you some high points in the book of Genesis. Now then, Exodus chapter 23. And we're still continuing with these diverse laws and judgments. And we uh, had 21 and 22 in our last lesson Sunday evening. And my, there were some wonderful and rich things about how we ought to uh, treat our fellow man and how we ought to deal with others and uh, the things that are against God's laws and against God's word, how we're not to do certain things. And here we're told in chapter 23 some more of that same. Uh, verse 1, Thou shalt not raise a false report. Put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Now, we're not to originate a false report. We're not to receive a false report. And we're not to circulate a false report. And that's exactly what God forbids. We're not to cause one. We're not to originate one. You know, just make it up and try to say, well, so-and-so did this or that or the other. And then we're not to receive it. If we hear something and we have a tendency to believe that really this is a false report about someone, about uh, the church or the preacher or one of the Christians or this or that, whoever it's about, we're not to receive it. And then we're certainly not to go about and circulate that which is false, are we? And I think that would be good to apply to our community as well as uh, our Christian fellowship. But you know, I was thinking the other day as I was reading the newspaper, the little old Rio Dosa News, how that some of these people, they're knocking down all of our counselors and our government, city government, and making fun of every one of them. I, I was almost tempted to just write Romans chapter 13 say, please read this, where it says you should show some honor and respect to who? To the powers that be. And give a little respect due to where it is due. And honor those that are to be honored. But you know, they just turn it right around and start talking about me. So what good would that do? So I decided against it. <laughs> because they've got a Bible and they can read it if they want to. But I'm sure many of them don't want to. But anyway, it is taught we're to show respect to those uh, that are in authority instead of make fun of them. Everyone is human and they make mistakes. But we're not to, we're to respect their office and their efforts. And, uh, okay, verse 2. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil, evil, neither shalt thou uh, speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment. This is like, uh, you know, to follow after many to rest judgment. You see on the TV many times of the old time westerns where they'd uh, get a hanging mob and get a bunch out there and get them all riled up to go out and do some harm. That's what it's talking about. Follow them to rest judgment. Or it says, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. As if the multitude knows what is right. In other words, don't follow the crowd. Some people say, well, I just went along with the crowd. Well, probably that was the wrong thing to do. Because God's Word, Jesus gives us a measuring stick. You want to know what the measuring stick is in the New Testament? Jesus said, that which is highly esteemed among men. That's the crowd, isn't it? 
is an abomination in the sight of God. And if you're just following the popular way, and if you're just following the way of the majority usually, the majority is not always right. In fact, sometimes the minority is right. And I know we have what we call a democratic form of government in the church, and yet we we uh, try to get our people that vote in a democratic way on certain issues to be led and guided by the Holy Spirit and to be united in the Lord. And that's a little bit different uh, thing than to have people aroused just because of emotion or excitement or because of some false report to get someone to fall in their way and say, let's do it. Let's go after this guy. And they're out of control and they're out of reason and they, they go the wrong way. Uh, it says in verse 3, Neither shalt thou countenance a poor man in his cause. We're to not be partial just because a person is poor or rich either. If thou uh, meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. Your enemy's ox or ass going astray. In other words, it doesn't hurt sometimes to get involved in something that is right, even if it... Uh, is uh, has to do with showing favor toward those that maybe no, do not even like you. Here it was an enemy, wasn't it? You're responsible to do right regardless of who's involved. A lot of times, you know, people see something as far as an automobile accident or someone hurt, and they just turn the other way. I don't want to get involved. You know what? They're scared to death that they're going to have to tell the truth about the whole situation and somebody's going to be hurt. But we ought to be willing to stand. I know it's uh, not a popular thing to get involved. But here, you're supposed to try to protect that which is right, even if it goes against the grain, so to speak. And then it says in verse 5, If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee lying under his burden. Now look, this, this uh, beast of burden cannot help it if the one that owns him hates you, can he? It says, and wouldest forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. Suppose you see someone that just hates you. Say you have a couple of neighbor farmers here. They don't at odds with each other. And one of their horses or cows gets uh, tangled up in the barbed wire fence. Are you just going to leave that cow there just because you don't like the other fellow? You should help the cow out, shouldn't you? Horse out of that, that barbed wire. And that's what it's talking about. Or at least notify the man where he can do it. Even if he doesn't like you. And that's only the right thing to do. You know, one thing uh, I think we ought to learn is to do that which is right. In verse 6 it says, Thou shalt not rest the judgment of, of thy poor in his cause. Keep thee far from a false matter, and the innocent and righteous slay thou not, for I will not justify the wicked. We're not to give assistance to a, a bad cause or something that's false. Verse 8, And thou shalt take no gift, for the gift blindeth the wise and perverteth the words of the righteous. That means taking bribes or being bought off to do something that's against your conscience, just because you may profit and gain by it. Verse 9, Also thou shalt not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, seeing you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Oppression is a, is a terrible thing, regardless of who it's against. And a person that's a stranger is naturally feeling lonely and, and, and in need of a friend anyway. And if you oppress him, you're just going to do harm where there's already a, 
uh, bad feeling because he's a stranger in a strange land. And Israel was a stranger in a strange land. If anyone should have known how they, they felt, it should have been the nation of Israel, the people of God. Now, verse uh, 10. <clears throat> and six years thou shalt sow thy land, and shalt gather in thy fruits thereof. But the seventh year thou shalt let it rest and lie still, that the poor of thy people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field shall eat. In like manner thou shalt deal with thy vineyard and with thine olive yard. Six years you to plow. The, you know, our government has this business of rotation of land and what you're to do with the land. God had it way back there in the book of Exodus, didn't he? Remember one night we was talking about uh, in the when they had the Passover lamb and it said uh, to prepare that roast lamb, a roast with fire and not sodden at all with water. And I told you about the guy coming by. We was out on the farm in Oklahoma and he came by and he's selling this waterless cookware and he said, you know, we've got a new way to cook. You cook without water and you put your meat in there and it cooks in its own juice. You know, this tray there under there that's stainless steel stuff. It wasn't new at all. Moses said back there in the book of Exodus, when you make that lamb, he says, don't put water in it. He says, roast with fire. He says, not sodden at all with water. So you see, a lot of these things we think we figured out. And our government says, you've got to rotate the land. Yeah. Well, God says you work it six years and you let it lie uh, out the seventh year. And, uh, and then if anything's, uh, any crop comes up volunteer on there, just natural, which there will be some. He says you're going to let the poor, that the poor, verse 11, of, of thy people may eat. They can go out and gather that when you're not farming it that year. See, it's going to be wasted anyway. It grew, it grew up free. It didn't cost you anything. It's just out there in the weeds. Some, some uh, grain and other things or whatever may grow there on a voluntary basis. And it belongs to the poor. And then it's good for your land, it's good for your, your workers, it's good for you, and it's good for the poor. So God has a way of uh, settling things up, doesn't He? In verse 12, six days thou shalt do thy work, and on the seventh day thou shalt rest. Just like the, the people were to work six days and rest the seventh day, so the land was to be worked and then rest uh, a year. And uh, six years and seven and one year of rest. That thine ox and thine ass may rest, and, thy, and the son of thy handmaid and the stranger may be refreshed. And in all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thine mouth. You see, God says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And he says, I don't want you to even make any mention of any other gods. Of course, nowadays... You'd be called narrow-minded as you come down with these thoughts from God's Word because they'll say, you know, have you heard it argued that Christians think that there's only one God and that you worship God and there's Christ and the only way of salvation? And they say, well, now look, there's a lot of religion in the world. There's the Buddhists and the Mohammedans, Islam and all various things. And then there's these various cults and there's more religions than you've got fingers and toes, Right? And, you, you know, they're just multiplied numbers of religions. But when you come down and say, God says there's only one, then you're accused of being narrow-minded. 
Now listen, beloved, let me tell you something. And I really believe this with all my heart. When you study this word, and you come to the conclusion, and you come to the conclusion that the Bible is true, and you believe that uh, the Bible teaches that there's only one way of salvation, you will have to, of necessity, reject all other ways of salvation. And there's no other hope held out to humankind but what is held out in Jesus Christ. And you're going to be narrow-minded in that fact. You're going to come right down and say, Yes, I believe that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And that will be a deep conviction. Now, either that's true or we have to push that out the window and say, Well, okay, everybody... Just do the best you can in whatever religion you belong to. Just be as sincere as you can, and we'll all end up okay. And that's the philosophy of society today. Let everyone go their own way. In the book of Judges, it says, Every man did that which was right in his own sight. Right? And it was, in that day there was what? No king in Israel. It's repeated over and over. In those days there was no king in Israel. When there's no king in Israel, God's people... Then every man takes a standard of doing that which is right in his own eyes, which is usually wrong, isn't it? So we have God's Word to guide us in the right way. The Bible says in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah that uh, a man does not know the way that he should go. And it's not in man to direct his paths. Well, if it's not in man, where is he going to get direction? We get direction from God's Word. The psalmist says, Guide me with thy counsel. And afterward, receive me to glory. That's what it sums up. Be guided by God's Word, and afterward you'll go to heaven. You'll be in glory with the Lord. Okay? Let's go on with this. It says, um, now verse 14 through 16, you're going to find three feasts that are mentioned. Verse 13 through, uh, 14 through 16. It says, Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. I'll read them, then come back and give you some comments. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded thee in the time appointed of the month of Abib. By the way, that is the first month uh, on the Jewish calendar. And then it says, For in it thou camest out from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of thy labors, this is the second one of the feasts, which thou hast sown in the field, and then, and the feast of ingathering, which is the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in thy labors out of the field. Three times in a year all thy males shall appear before the Lord thy God. Thou shalt uh, not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, neither shall the fat of uh, my sacrifice remain until the morning. We'll read that far. That's down to verse 18. And come back and give you these three feasts. The first one is in verse... Uh, 14 and 15, it says, Three times keep a feast in the Lord. Now, verse 15 says, Thou shalt keep the feast of the unleavened bread. The feast of unleavened bread represents the, the Passover or the death of Christ. If you want to let, It really is the Passover feast, and it represents the death of Christ. And, then, and of course, he, he came forth out of the grave after three days. It was a feast that lasted seven days, and it, it was the feast... Uh, that was centered upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then you come down to verse 16, and the feast of harvest, the first fruits of thy labor, labor, this was later. This is typical of the infilling of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. 
And then you have in verse 16 also the feast of ingathering, which is in the end of the year. And, and this is called the Feast of uh, Tabernacles and symbolical of the millennium. It's the end of the year. And these three feasts, Israel was commanded to bring their males uh, there and that they might appear before the Lord at three times a year and dedicated to God. And God required this. By the way, this was demanded. They were commanded to keep these feasts and they had no choice in the matter. They had to keep these feasts. And you know, God's Word tells us that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. A lot of people say, I'll go to the house of God if I want to. Well, God's not going to put you under the law like in the Old Testament and enforce it in the same way. But it's still just as much of a command not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That doesn't mean if you miss a church service or if you're sick or something that God's judgment's going to fall upon you and you're going to be wiped out. It doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean it's an encouragement for us to assemble together, doesn't it? In the New Testament, we're living in the day and age of grace and not under the law. And if they could serve God by command under the law, surely we can serve Him freely under grace, right? Uh, the Bible says in the book of Romans, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. And that's where the Christian is. He's under grace. Now then, let's go on with this. In verse 18, it says, Thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, neither shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until the morning. What does it mean with leavened bread? Leaven is a type of sin. Leaven is a picture of sin. I'll give you two references in the New Testament. Look in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you will. Verse 7. Well, let's read verse 6 and 7. <clears throat> Well, let's read verse 6, 7, and 8. <laughs> I always get a little, little more and a little more there all the time. Okay, verse 6. Your glorying is got not good. You have 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. See, it's taken from the same feast that we're talking about in the Old Testament. For even Christ, our Passover, not the unleavened bread Passover of the Old Testament, but He's our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Now, verse 8. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven. Notice how many times the word leaven is mentioned in unleavened. Neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness. What is leaven associated with? What? Malice and wickedness. Now look. But with the unleavened, what is unleavened bread associated with? Of sincerity and truth. You see, the unleavened bread is that good positive side of sincerity and truth. The leaven, uh, the leaven is uh, leavened bread of malice and wickedness. And we're applying it to New Testament things now. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, I want to read something for you. It applies not only to our fellowship and how we keep the feast and how we get evil out of our lives and serve God with a true heart and sincerity and truth, but it applies to what we believe as well. 
where you stand. You either stand on the side of leaven, evil doctrine, false teaching, or you stand on the side of truth as a believer. In Matthew 16, let me give you this, in verse 6. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware. You know, when I see a sign that says, Beware, I go up to a gate and it says, Beware, a big bulldog with spots all around his collar. <laughs> you know. Beware of the dog. I don't even go up to that fence. Right? Because I don't want to take a chance of getting bit by that dog. I know he must be vicious. In fact, I probably wouldn't go up there if it didn't have a sign. But on the other hand, be that as it may, if there was a sign that said, Beware, I certainly would stay away. That would certainly be a warning, wouldn't it? And Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven. What did he say? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Now, what did he want them to be careful about and be really warned about? What was the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Let's follow it on down. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. In other words, we'll have to buy some of their bread. It might be uh, leavened bread, and we'll be in trouble because we've taken no bread. Which when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves because ye have brought no bread? Do ye not understand, neither remember the five loaves and the five thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? Neither the seven loaves and the four thousand, how many baskets you took up. I'm not speaking about bread because you've seen me multiply bread for the five thousand and for the four thousand. And why would I be concerned about you not taking any bread? But what was he teaching? Look at the next verses. How is it, verse 11, that you do not understand that I spake it not unto you, not to you concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? How is it you don't understand what I'm talking about? Verse 12. Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine, the teaching of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. The erroneous teaching you're to beware of. You see, we pointed out in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 how it was erroneous living or living in wickedness. And we pointed out here that it was erroneous teaching. And so, you and I are to beware of those that would cause us to live in the wrong kind of fellowship and accept evil. And we're to put away malice and wickedness and put on the sincerity, the unleavened bread of what? Sincerity and truth. And here, uh, as Jesus taught us, of that which is evil in its teaching, of the teaching or the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And of course, the Pharisees, if you want to go back and study the doctrine, the Pharisees, what were they? They were legalistics. They, were, they stemmed from legalism. And they taught, do as I say and not as I do. And then the Sadducees didn't believe in any hereafter. They didn't believe in eternity. They didn't believe in a resurrection. And so he says, beware of the teaching of the legalist and of the ones that do not believe in an afterlife or believe in eternal uh, glory and the resurrection of the dead. Beware of those people. If that shouldn't teach us something today, brother, we've got... We've got legalists on one side and those that do not believe in the hereafter on the other side. And Jesus says, beware of both of them. 
Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And it hasn't changed a bit. You still have the legalists. And you still have the people say, do as I do. and I mean, do as I say and not as I do. You know, well, if, you can't, if they can't practice what they preach, certainly don't follow them. Right? Paul says that I was in, we're examples of the believer in word, faith, charity, and so on. He told Timothy to be an example of the believer, didn't he? Alright? If the man up there is teaching and he doesn't practice it, it doesn't merit your following it. Because, see, that's, that's hip- hypocritical, isn't it? That is hypocrisy. In fact, in one place he said, Beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And he pointed that out as well. And so we ought to do what we teach. And it doesn't mean that anybody's perfect. It means that uh, certainly we should allow for Christian uh, brothers to uh, that uh, love will cover a multitude of sins. And that we know if we, we belong to the Lord, we're, uh, we're His children and we're forgiven. And yet we're all subject to mistakes. But as far as an outward practice of doing exactly the opposite of we preach and teach, that shouldn't be followed. And then, okay, back to Exodus. Where were we? Exodus chapter 23. Okay, verse um, 18. Now, verse 19. The first of the first fruits of thy land thou shalt bring into the house of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not see the kid in his mother's milk. All right. The first of the first fruits of thy land they were to bring to the house of the Lord thy God. In the Old Testament, boy, there's a whole message on bringing the supply of the provision for the house of Levi, for the service of the tabernacle later on, for the service of the temple later on than that. And it was set apart to God's work and service. That's why he says in Malachi concerning Israel, bring you all the tithes into the storehouse. They knew where it was. In the book of Nehemiah, the Bible tells us that that, uh, the house of God was forsaken. And Nehemiah says, why is the house of God forsaken? And then he goes on to say, because the people have not brought their tithes. He wasn't talking about people not coming. You know, when the preacher gets up today and he uses that for a text, he says, why is the house of God forsaken? He's talking about the pews. And the people lack of attendance. But that's not what he's talking about in the book of Nehemiah. He's talking about the house of God being forsaken in that the people had robbed God of the tithes and offerings that belonged in the house of God for the support of the, those that ministered. You check it out. That's what the context says in the book of Nehemiah. We won't have time to go to all those references, but we're in the New Testament. The Bible teaches that Christians are to bring their tithes and it tells about the tabernacle. It tells about the thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that uh, in First Corinthians that uh, that uh, treadeth out the corn. And it says, does God take care for oxen, or was it for uh, our sakes that it was written? It was. It says it's for our sakes that this was written. Why? That he that uh, plows should plow in hope. He that thrashes should thrash in hope. And then he says concerning the tabernacle. And the temple, he said, God provided for them. And he says, even so hath the Lord ordained in the New Testament that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Right? 
And it simply means this. You can put it in plain words. It means that the people that are ministered unto bring their tithes to the the house of God, that it's used to support the ministry, both uh, local and as far as our missionaries is concerned, the support of those that are servants of God. And it's used in that way. And by the way, that's God's plan and it's sufficient. And you don't have to start having auction sales and rummage sales and pie suppers and box suppers and all kinds of promotions and bake sales and go down to Walmart and sit in their lobby down there and say, the church needs, it looks like we're begging. looks like we're not able to support ourselves. God says the cattle upon a thousand hills are mine. If I had any need of anything, I wouldn't ask you for it. See, God doesn't need it. He says, I've given you a plan whereby the church can be supported. We find people using all kinds of gimmicks other than what God has designated. If we'll go back to, to bringing what God says, we won't have any problems. And we haven't have. Because most of you believe this and do it and practice it. And by the way, the Levite was to give a tithe of what he got too. And so that means the preacher is to, that stands behind the pulpit when he gets his uh, money or pay or uh, his hire, he's to give a tenth of that back to the Lord's work too. And there have been preachers all over the country saying, no, that's mine. I don't give a tenth of that. My son went to church, uh, went to school with a little boy. His dad was a pastor of the First Baptist Church a few years back. Now, I won't call his name, but they went together. And Darrell was telling him about us, you know, about the tithes and offerings. And he said, oh, Daddy doesn't give that. He says, he doesn't give any tithes. That's his. I thought, well, that's how can I get up and preach to you tithing if I don't tithe? How can I preach to you anything if I don't practice it? See? And uh, boy, there, you'd be surprised how many of them there are too. But they do that. But I give a tithe of everything the Lord gives me. And you should. It's our business. That's the way God will bless it. And you know, He'll bless you for it. He always has. And He always will. If you put it into practice, let me tell you, young people, something might help. If you put into practice uh, first giving the Lord a tenth and then taking a tenth and putting back in your savings or putting back for yourself, just as religiously as you put the tenth for the Lord, you put that back for yourself, you'll always have something. It's not easy. You say, well, I needed to buy so-and-so. Well, I did too. But you've got to make some choices in life to either do without something that you could have spent that 10% that you was going to put back for yourself. And you say, well, it's too hard to do that. Well, if it's too hard to do that, just go ahead and not do it. But it's your choice. It's your choice. But that's just a little advice. If you'll take it, you'll have a little bit as you go along in life because you've prepared for it. And God expects us to take care of ourselves. You know, Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow. In other words, the word take no thought was be not over anxious for tomorrow. In other words, to worry about it. Oh, I'm not going to have enough food or I'm not going to have any shelter and I'm not going to have any this. But then the Bible says further, says go to the ant, thou slugger. says he works in the summer and he lays up his meat for the winter. So he's thrifty, and he stores something ahead for for the winter weather, doesn't he? And you don't find them the next spring all starved out. They come out when the spring, and I've got that anthill there, and it's just as 
uh, vibrant and full of life as it ever was before. In fact, you can hardly kill those rascals. Pour gasoline all over them, burn them and everything else, and they'll hide somewhere else and they'll come up the next spring about ten feet over there, got a nice bigger home than they had to start with. Right? You try it. They'll move some across your yard from one end to the other. But they know what they're doing. See? They're industrious. They're thrifty. They save what they have. And they prepare for the bad times. And, and you say, oh, that contradicts what Jesus says. No, it doesn't contradict for it. He, he tells us in that same passage that uh, uh, concerning provision, and he says the things you need to have, be concerned about is those things that God will provide. And he says uh, concerning those that sow and reap, he says, consider the lilies of the field. Consider the fowls of the air. He says, neither of these sow nor reap, and yet uh, the fowls are fed, and the uh, lilies are clothed. But we do sow and we do reap. And if they're pro- provided for by the grace of God, by, by not doing anything because they're God's creatures and they need that kind of provision, certainly He will provide for us for you and I who do sow and who do reap if we'll do it in the right way. And so that that's a lesson that maybe we need. All right, let's turn. Uh, where are we at? Verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. The angel of the Lord to take care of them, protect them, beware of him, Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an, an enemy to thine enemies and an adversary to thine adversaries. Isn't it God, good to have God on your side? It is. He says, I'll be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries, for mine angels shall go before thee, that's to lead us, isn't it? And bring thee into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. All the ites of the land wherein they were going to possess it. In verse 24, Thou shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works. God wants His people to be a separated people and He says you need to have some conviction and you must not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor to do after their works. Follow God's example instead of the heathen religion's examples. But thou shalt utterly overthrow them and quite break down their images and ye shall serve the Lord your God. And He shall bless thy bread and thy water and I will take thy sickness away from the midst of thee. There shall nothing cast their young, nor be barren in thy land. The number of thy days I will fulfill. I will send my fear before thee, and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come, and I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. Isn't that what, uh, you remember Rahab the harlot? When the, when the men, the spies went in, and, and she said to these men, God has put your fear upon all the people of this land. Says we, our hearts faint because of you, and they were ready to give up. They were ready to to give up to them, and therefore Rahab begged for mercy, didn't she? She says, "Remember me when you come in to take Jericho, and be sure." And, uh, and they said, "Well, uh, you let the scarlet line down out of your window, and we'll remember where you are." The Bible tells us that it, I mean uh, the 
Haley's Bible Handbook speaks of Garn, Garnstang in 1934, 35, I believe it is, when they were excavating where the ruins of Jericho and they found that all the, the walls had fallen down, flat, down the hill, and the outward wall fell and pulled the inward wall. There was two sets of walls, and there was one portion that was remained standing. They say that's probably where Rahab's house was. And they they were delivered out, taken out, and all that were with her were spared by faith. By faith was Rahab the harlot saved, and she perished not with them that believed not, right? She believed. She had faith. So he says, I'll put your fear, I'll put my fear in, in them. Now verse 28. And I will send hornets before thee, which shall drive out the Hivite and the Canaanite and the Hittite from before thee. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. You see, God's people always want a quick victory, don't they? Or do it right away, Lord. God says, I'm not going to do this. But look, he says, By little and little I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. You see, it's by little by little that we overcome. You know, there's some of God's people say, if I could just go to church about two or three times and everything be fixed and I'm a Christian now, everything's okay, everything will be good from then on. It's little by little. Day by day we serve the Lord. Week by week we assemble to worship God. And we live a whole lifetime worshiping and serving God. And what could be better? Who would want it any other way? A child of God wants to, first of all, worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. And that's the way you learn, little by little. You don't learn it all in one day. It takes day in and day out. I get so amused at people that they come to Sunday school a time or two and think they ought to know the whole Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. And they can hardly turn to any book that you name. Christians ought to learn their Bible. You ought to learn where the books of the Bible are. We teach these little kiddos back in Sunday school, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Right on through, they know the Old Testament and the New. And we should know it as adults. You say, well, I can't remember 